Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Bloody Bizarre Podcast. My name is Emma. I'm Sarah. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in for another week. Yes, thank you. Um, we hope you enjoyed last week, The Slender Man. End of... <laughs> is that it? <laughs> I don't know if you can tell, but I've got a little bit of a cold at the moment. Well, you have been coughing, which is yucky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, clearing your throat. Yeah, so I don't know if my voice is going to sound weird, but if it does, that's why. It doesn't sound that weird uh, IRL. In person? Yeah. Doesn't it? No. Okay. I thought it did. I nearly lost my voice this morning when I woke up, recovered. I was saying to someone at work that everyone in my life is sick at the moment. Like so many people at work, you, Abby, mum. Yeah. Ev- not. Everyone's just got like a mild. Mild cold. Yeah. 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 Mm. Okay. Well, it doesn't sound that weird. So I guess we push on. Yeah. yeah we, can, we can still record. <laughs> can we persevere? <laughs> Do you want me to just jump in with what I'm talking about? Yeah. I don't think there's anything that we need to discuss up top. Just the usual stuff. Like if you're enjoying the podcast, give it, give us a follow Give us a like. Oh, yeah. We haven't said that in ages, but I mean, it goes without saying, all right? Um, I don't know. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> click, click subscribe if you like it. It's, <laughs> it's pretty intuitive. We're <laughs> um, just explaining it because we don't have that many. So the only possible reason could be that people <laughs> don't, don't know. know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we'll put up a tutorial. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, imagine if they just skyrocketed after that be like oh okay um, that's what it was that's actually what it was <sighs> all right i'm gonna get started yeah because okay, it's gonna be a long one yeah you said it's a long one it's gonna be a long one and i think there's gonna be uh, i look i'm just gonna jump in okay um today i'm talking about the starved rock murders oh okay i don't know much, much at all about this one my sources are wikipedia an article in the chicago tribune by christy gutowski and Corey rumore um americanhauntingsinc.com chicagomag.com article by jake maluli maluli sorry and an oxygen.com article by kate zincone now when I started this, I um, told you off air, I thought I knew the story pretty well. And then through the research, I realized that there are two very opposed camps with this story that one that believes he is completely innocent and was railroaded and was like convicted on shoddy evidence. And then the other that believes it is fully guilty. Have you taken a side after research? I think so. Okay, I'm interested to see what yeah. I think. Okay, so <laughs> I'm interested to see what I think. <laughs> the year 1960. Oh, it's an old one. Not that old. 1960. I mean, our parents were born. They were toddlers. Look at them now. <laughs> okay. Three women, Frances Murphy, 47, Mildred Lindquist, 50, and Lillian Etting, oh, sorry, Oting. I've also heard her surname pronounced Etting, so, but I think it's Oting. Okay. Um, 50. All wives of prominent Chicago businessmen. These women were friends and often went on trips with each other. The women lived in the Chicago suburb of Riverside. In March of 1960, the three decided that their next trip together would be to visit the beautiful Starved Rock State Park, which is about an hour and a half southwest of Chicago and about an hour north of Illinois State University. Is that where you went? Mm-hmm. Cool. I went to Starved Rock. 
Oh, you've been here. I've been here. Mm-hmm. I did not know about the murders when I was there. Right. So some info on Starved Rock State Park. First of all, sitting in LaSalle County and on the south bank of the Illinois River, the park hosts over 2 million visitors annually, the most for any Illinois state park, and it's known for its rich and dense forest amongst deep canyons. Oh, that sounds cool. It's beautiful. There's a lot of waterfalls there. Do you have photos from it? Uh, possibly, yep. I, I, I love lost like half my American photos. How? Yeah. Um, but just like through changing phones and because when I was over there, I didn't have Google. Oh. Um, so yeah, it's a bit of a bummer, but, um, and I was looking, I was actually looking through half of them last night and I was getting really upset because it's such a good time and I'll never experience that, that happiness again. So maybe good that you don't have the other half of the photos. <laughs> <laughs> there are a few suggestions about how it's got its name, how Starved Rock got its name, but the most frequently cited is the following. Uh, according to local legend, a group of Native Americans of the Illinois Confederation, also called the... Illiniwek or Illini or Illini. It's one of those, I think. Um, I mean, I can't correct you. I have no um, idea. Pursued by the Ottawa and Potawatomi, fled to the Butte in the late 18th century. All of those words are like foreign to me. Mm-hmm. Um, in the legend, around 1769, the Ottawa and Potawatomi besieged the Butte until all of the Illiniwek had starved. And what the, is a Butte? Oh, it's, like a, it's like a rocky out, outlook. Okay. Yeah. And the butte became known as Starved Rock. So they literally starved these Native Americans out. Yeah. And that's why it's called that, mm-hmm. according to legend. So these three ladies decide to have a girl's trip four days in Starved Rock State Park, where there was a nice lodge and you could go on day hikes, uh, etc. Et Sounds fun. Yeah. The three friends who all attended Riverside Presbyterian Church had been hanging out for an outing together. Oting, who had spent the entire winter nursing her husband after a heart attack, was especially looking forward to several days of hiking, bird watching, and spending time outdoors. Now, this is March in Illinois, so it is very, very cold, but I still think like that would be fun. Yeah, if you're in a lodge, it's not like they're camping. Well, they do go on a lot of hikes and stuff, or like they, they want to yeah. go on hikes and stuff, but still. You can go back to your lodge and yeah, you can have like, a hot chocolate. So, employees at the Parks Lodge would later remember the arrival of the three ladies. Frances Murphy had parked her grey station wagon at the lodge's parking area, and she and her friends had unloaded the, um, their luggage, registered for two rooms, dropped off their bags, and then ate lunch in the dining room. They had a lunch of chow mein, juice and coffee, and cake and a sundae for dessert. Sounds yummy. What is chow mein? Like a noodle dish. Okay. Didn't I make it the other day and I sent you a photo of it? Oh, probably. I just probably didn't know what it was. I probably thought it was like curry or something. (laughs) Noodles. Yeah, yeah, probably. After their lunch, they spoke to one of the staff members saying it was a beautiful day for a hike and they left the lunch carrying a camera and a small pair of binoculars. The women walked away from the lodge wearing rubber galoshes. Do you know what they are? It's like a covering for your shoes, but it's rubber. It's almost like a gumboot that goes over your shoes. Oh, yeah. okay. The path was covered with a light snow and they trudged and slipped along, pausing occasionally to take photographs of one another. Eventually, they came to the dead end of St. Louis Canyon, where steep rocky walls form, framed a majestic frozen waterfall. The three women were only one mile from the lodge. Lillian Oating struggled with the controls of her friend's camera and snapped several colour slides of the canyon. So they've got the, just for a spoiler, these women die. Um, you, yeah, yes. you figured, yeah. yeah. Um, and they find the camera and there's like pictures of the day of them like smiling in locations and then there's all these pictures of just like colour slides, they call it, which is just nothing pretty much. Okay. Oh, because back then it would have been like a... Slide um, camera. Polaroid kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They were due back before the evening, uh, but the women didn't return. However, the absence was not noticed by the lodge staff. That night, 
George Oding tried to telephone his wife at the lodge. She had promised to call him because he he was the one that just had the heart attack. Yeah. Um, but when she hadn't, Oding placed his own call. He was told by staff on duty at the desk that his wife was not available. It was surmised that the ladies had gone out somewhere and the staff member suggested that she would call in the morning. So unconcerned, Oding went to bed. It's only been one day. Yeah. On Tuesday morning, the next morning, he called the lodge again and once more asked to speak to his wife. The employee who answered mistakenly told him that the three women had been seen at breakfast and were simply out of the lodge at that time. So reassured, Oding ended the call. That night, there was a snowstorm that came through the region and the area was blanketed in snow. Next morning, March 16th, George Oding telephoned the lodge again. This, this is three days since he's... Yeah, now he'd be getting A little stressed. bit concerned, yeah. But his wife and her friends could still not be located. At his insistence, the employees entered the women's room and found that the beds and bags were untouched. A quick check of the parking lot also showed that, Murph, that the Murphy station wagon had not been moved. Shocked, Oding realised that his wife and her friends had now been missing for more than 40 hours. As soon as Oding broke off the call, he telephoned his longtime friend, Virgil W. Peterson, the operating director of the Chicago Crime Commission. Oh, friends in high places. Friends in high places, absolutely. When Peterson learned of the news, he contacted the state police and other law enforcement agencies in the area. Within minutes, word of the missing women had reached the, the LaSalle County Sheriff's Office and Sheriff Ray Utse began organizing search parties to look for the women. He accompanied one of the groups that left immediately for the park. A volunteer group of boys from a forestry camp for juvenile offenders in nearby Marseille were the ones who found the bodies. Oh, how old yeah. were they? Young. Oh, that's sad. They came upon the battered, bloodied corpses of Lillian, Mildred and Francis on the floor of a shallow cave within the St. Louis Canyon, one of the park's most scenic locations, a little more than a mile from the lodge. It was only about 90 minutes of searching before they were found. Right, so, yeah, they were close. Yeah. Bill Danley, a local newspaper reporter, was one of the first on the scene. He reported that the women seemed to have all been bludgeoned to death. A bloodstained tree limb was found nearby, which was determined to be the murder weapon. The three mutilated women were lying side by side, partially covered with snow. They were on their backs, under a small ledge, and the lower clothing had been torn away from two of the three women, and their legs spread open. Each of them had been beaten viciously about the head, and two of the bodies were tied together with heavy white twine. They were covered with blood, and their exposed legs were blackened with bruises. In autopsy, it was also revealed that the tip of one of Francis' fingers was cut off and has never been recovered. Ew, what the fuck? Mm. Shortly after the arrival of state police detectives, an investigation was initiated in the immediate vicinity. Apart from the floor of the overhang where the corpses were discovered, the entire canyon was blanketed with approximately six inches of snow, which made searching really difficult. Yeah, would that des- does that destroy evidence or is it good for evidence because it's cold? Well, I guess it would act like, wa- like water in some way. Patchy, go on. I guess it would act like water. in Like when it melts, it would be like water. But then yeah. also it would just be like... Even if it's not melted, it would be like dumping a bunch of like sand on top of evidence. So yeah, I guess I'm to, just thinking because it's cold. At least it's like yeah. Well, I mean the bodies would have been preserved, but yeah. I think any any evidence on the ground would have been ruined by the yeah. snow. Yeah. So Mrs. Murphy's camera was located roughly ten feet away from the victims. Its leather case tainted with blood and its strap broken. Additionally, the women's binocular uh, sorry the women's bloodied binoculars were found. Traces of gore led the investigators to speculate that the women had been murdered further into the canyon and subsequently dragged and positioned beneath the rock ledge. Traces of gore? Yeah, like blood matter. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that that's what gore was. What did you think gore was? Like, gory. Well, yeah, it is. What yeah. do you think gory means? 
I'd like a gory movie or like a gory image. I thought it was like an adjective. Oh, you didn't think gore was a word? Yeah, I thought I oh. didn't think it was a na- I didn't think it was a noun. I thought it was an adjective. I see. Well, <laughs> learning educated podcast too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's add that to the tags. <laughs> yeah. So the bodies remained undisturbed until pathologists and officials from the state crime lab could arrive. I'm going to also include here another crime that had happened in Matheson State Park, which is mere miles from Starved Rock. In July of 1959, so about six months earlier, uh, a robbery occurred in Matheson Park. Then in September 1959, so even closer to this crime, a man bound a teenage girl with twine and raped her in Matheson State Park. I was going to say, were these women sexually assaulted? Like, I know the way their bodies were found definitely indicates that. um, There's evidence that suggests that one of them was. Right. But I'm not sure if I mention it, and this might be giving a little bit away, but the prosecution deliberately did not bring that up in trial. Okay. Take from that what you will. These two parks, Matheson State Park and Starved Rock, they're literally less than a 10-minute drive from one another. Okay. So I think it's entirely possible, if not probable, that those two crimes are linked. Connected, yeah, yeah. the same person. Because what's the chances of having a super violent person? Yeah, two super sexual, violent people. sadistically. Yeah. And also the twine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> uh, back to Starved Rock. Two pathologists from the Bloomington Normal area, where I was. Yeah conducted autopsies autopsy revealed time of death to be shortly after their lunch so they were murdered on the day they disappeared they weren't kind of held somewhere and then murdered but not a lot more was kind of gleaned from the autopsy um they did die of blunt force trauma to the head though investigators started looking for motive these were women with no known enemies uh robbery was not likely as the camera was left behind and the women had left most of their valuables in their rooms before they left um there was there was evidence of sexual assault though so maybe that was the motive police turned their attention to suspects as the investigation slowly moved forward fear was gripping the region Doors that were never locked before were now firmly secured. Hardware stores experienced sellouts of new deadbolts and sporting goods stores saw gun sales increase at an alarming rate. The number of overnight guests at the Starved Rock Lodge dropped to almost nothing and some motorists went miles out of their way to avoid driving near the canyon entrance. Wow. Very scared. Yeah. Newspapers and radio broadcasters around the state widely reported the slow progress of the investigation and elevated the level of panic in the area too. So a lot of fear mongering going on for sure. And I suppose it would have been, was it sort of like a quiet area before? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Among the few hundred people questioned were, were all the employees and guests of the lodge, transients living in 17 motels in the vicinity, known fur poachers, a bakery truck driver seen near the canyon entrance the day of the crime, a man spotted in the park days before the killings, and this, this man not long after was arrested for chasing high school girls in Utica. That's weird. Yeah. Sheriff say even tracked down a travelling minister who had taken some motion pictures while driving through the park on the day the women were killed. The reverend turned over the films, but they yielded nothing of substance. Chips came flooding in by mail and telephone, but the bit of information that seemed most solid was provided by a LaSalle auto dealer who recalled that on March 14th, the day they they went missing, at around 2pm, he was driving down Illinois Route 178, the road beside an entrance to St. Louis Canyon, where he saw a tan and beige Chevrolet Bel Air backing up to where three women stood. A young man got out of the car and began talking to the women. Another man stayed in the car. 
The dealer's description of the first man was around 25 years old, 5 foot 8, 165 pounds, wavy reddish brown hair, dressed in a yellow gray coat and blue pants that may have been denim. That's the end of that tip. I was going to say, it makes sense to me that it's more than one person. Two because people. to take down three people, I feel like that would be quite hard for one person because surely, like, you start attacking one person, the other one's going to run. Like, yeah. Or they're going to, like, they're going to try and attack you. Yeah, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that it was one person, but I think it's certainly, like, it makes more sense Mm. for it to be two. Reviewing the evidence, the chief of psychiatry at Stateville Prison provided the investigators with a sketch, in quotes, of the type of person that could have committed the killings. Um, This was it. A semi-reclusive man between the ages of 25 and 30 with a powerful physique who may have been motivated to kill to gratify sexual urges. Notice that he only says one person. Yeah. In late April, with the triple homicide still unsolved, the Illinois Crime Lab came under intense fire for bungling the investigation. Oh no, what did they do? (laughs) (laughs) For weeks, the short-staffed and underfunded laboratory... Is that what we say, or do we say laboratory? Laboratory, laboratory. I think I um, cycle between the two. Yeah, I think I do too. It's not a word that I say very often. I think I'd say lab. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Labo. (laughs) (laughs) So the underfunded laboratory could not locate Lillian's rings on her, you know, the ones that were on her fingers until a deputy unpacking evidence found them inside her glove. Oh my God. Not inside the the technician's glove, inside Lillian's glove. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Another missing piece of evidence, Francis reading glasses was discovered in the pocket of her jacket. Okay. The lab also didn't promptly report bloody fingerprints on the women's clothing. It also allegedly misidentified hair found in Lillian's hand as that of a female. A subsequent examination showed the source to be two males, one a youth and the other a middle-aged man. Oh, okay. So they, they've got like pretty much evidence that it was two people. Yes. Well, no. They have evidence. They She has hair in her hand. There's hair found at the scene that that is of two people. Yeah, well, I guess, yes. Yes. The continued newspaper scrutiny of the case kept pressure on police officials to make progress, especially at Harland Warren's county office. Now, I don't talk about it too much, but Harland Warren was up for re-election during this period as well. And so he was under like... Oh, he was the uh, district attorney. Okay. So throughout 1960, he was under ever-increasing pressure to solve the murders. Frustrated, he felt that he'd taken enough criticism for the investigation. He was an attorney, not a, detec- not a detective, but he decided to take one last desperate run at the case. He asked himself what the killer had left behind at the scene, and he came to the twine that the killer had used to bind the victims. So using his own money, Warren purchased a microscope and began to intently conduct a study of the twine in this he was not he was an attorney a district attorney but you know an attorney nonetheless what was he going to glean from that as somebody who's not an expert i'm going to tell you so his own research revealed that there were two kinds of twine used a 20 ply cord and a 12 ply one now i think that would be pretty easy to figure out uh, i was gonna say yeah. would the police like he, he goes <laughs> to the cops and he's like so i've i've realized that there were two types of rope used and they were like yeah no, no, that we was can... not that was not discovered yet. They didn't know. <laughs> this is in the 60s as well. You got to give him a break, but yeah. 
So with this information, he sought out help to follow the lead. Instead of choosing someone from his own staff, he handpicked two county detectives who would report to him alone. The two men were deputies Bill Dummett and Wayne Hess. They were both trustworthy and intelligent and would not leak the details of what Warren was doing to the newspapers. That he was running like his own investigation. Essentially, yeah. How embarrassing for the cops. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Like that the district attorney is like, you are bungling this so much that I'm going to take a second job as a detective (laughs) to figure it out. (laughs) There was also um, a bit of like dick measuring going on because this happened in a state park. State police wanted to handle it, Mm. but the local police also wanted to handle it. But the local police were so kind of um, inexperienced in this area. So so then they had to give it over to state police. And then so there was a bit of like friction there. Argy-bargy. Yeah. So there are some issues like in that regard too. The men chose the most logical place to start the search for the source of the twine. This is Starved Rock Lodge. In September 1960, Warren and his deputies met with the manager of the lodge's kitchen. Within minutes, Warren found both kinds of twine used in the murder in the kitchen. Oh, that's interesting. Um, They were each used for wrapping food, and Dummett and Hess, using lodge purchasing records, soon tracked down the twine's manufacturer. The twine used to bind the victims uh, had been taken without question from the supply in the lodge's kitchen. Mm, okay so it's like a staff member yeah or someone who had access to the kitchen yeah yeah to warren's surprise all the lodge employees had already been subjected to polygraph tests and had all passed yeah but polygraph tests no i know but yeah (laughs) he was like oh my gosh (laughs) he was shocked so warren decided to test them again though Many of the employees were cleared quickly until chester otto wager a slight and small man and the dishwasher at the lodge was brought in I like the name Chester. Mm. No? Chesty. Chesty. <laughs> Chesty. <laughs> when Wager's polygraph test was completed, Warren noticed that the examiner's face had gone pale. Ooh. As soon as Wager left the cabin, he turned to Warren, this is the examiner, turned to Warren and the two deputies and quietly stated, quote, that's your man. Oh, ho, ho, shit. I'll note here as well that Chester Wager had passed two previous lie detector tests but failed this one. And yeah. obviously the examiner was like, oh, let's see, man. And also important to note that polygraph means tests bo- means fucking nothing. All they test is like your sweat and your heart rate. And so yeah. they're, they're not, you know, some people can pass them easily. Some people can fail them just from being nervous about being questioned. So in 1952, this is just going back a little bit. So remember this happened in the 1960s. Yeah. In 1952, when Wager was 12 or 13, he was arrested on a statutory rape charge in Oglesby. Mm -hmm. The incident is mentioned in the Illinois Prisoner Review Board documents, but the details have been redacted due to the ages of the people involved. Wager claimed that he got in trouble because he... This is so weird. He got in trouble because he put a piece of white cloth inside the vagina of a girl who'd been raped by someone else. What? Yeah. Why? I don't, I've got no clue. Maybe it was a religious thing. And did the girl consent to this? I mean, obviously she can't consent properly if she's underage. But well, like- but he was underage too. He was 12 or 13, so it wouldn't be statutory. He says, quote, I was told to plead guilty, and he wrote that in his prison autobiography that the Tribune reported on in 1963. He, he said, wrote an autobiography. Yeah, he's written a whole bunch of stuff. Um, he said, quote, I did, and I was given a pass. And in other words, this means he was placed on probation. But it was still recorded down as a crime. And I also don't know why that wasn't, like, um, 
his records was, weren't sealed at 18, but maybe that wasn't the practice back then. So strange. Such a strange crime. As yeah, well. it is. Weird. Weird, weird, weird. Um, it sounds like a lie. It sounds like a lie from him. Yes. Yes. Trying to minimize any crime that he might have committed. Yes. Yeah. Or like maybe him and somebody else. Yeah. Both sexually assaulted this girl. But then he, why was it statutory rape? I guess if she was underage as well. Maybe she was even younger. I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, just note that. Yeah. Okay. Keep that in your head. Um, so the discovery of that incident in Wager's background put the former dishwasher on the investigator's radar. Chester was married and had two children. Um, he turned up to work the day after the women were assumed to have been killed with scratches on his face. Oh, that's not a good look. Not a good look. This is in the 60s, so any DNA under the women's fingernails not only wouldn't have been collected, but couldn't have been tested. Just to note, DNA became common in the 80s, or like testing DNA became common in the 80s. But armed with his lie detector fail, Warren narrowed his focus on Chester. Oddly, Chester seemed to be very cooperative. During an early interview with the police, Wager mentioned to state troopers that he knew of a shortcut out of St. Louis Canyon, quote, up behind the falls someplace. He offered to show the men the route if they felt it would be helpful. One trooper later testified that while they explored the area around the waterfall, Wager stopped, pointed up into a cave and asked, quote, is that where the women were lying? And that's where they were found. Right. Um... He surrendered a piece of buckskin jacket that he owned so that some suspicious dark stains on it could be examined. And those dark stains later turned out to be human blood. That belonged to the women? They couldn't test it. So in 1960, it could not be typed and matched to a specific victim. Just that it was was human human blood. blood. Yes. Oh, that's really annoying. Can they test it now? Do they still have it? I'm going to talk. Well, so they still have all this. Can you get to this? Well, I'll I'll tell you now. They still have all the evidence. Well, they still have most of the evidence, but it's been handled by so many people. Um, they even were letting like school kids touch the evidence. Oh. Like it was on display. Like God. it's it's just not testable now. Yeah. But the thing is, though, right? Even if they were to test it now and they were to go, okay, so we can find the, one of those three women on this jacket, then yeah. surely that would mean. But I guess it's like it's maybe it's like because so many other people have touched it, maybe that that DNA is so degraded that you can't pick it up or something like that. I don't know how DNA works, but Um, so, so yes. So he's got this buckskin jacket that's got blood on it. Mm -hmm. Warren also asked Wager to submit to further polygraph tests. And again, Wager agreed. He was given an an entire series of tests and he obsessed with these polygraph. Yeah. He loves them. Yeah. Even though at this point they still, they couldn't be admitted. They couldn't be used as in court. (laughs) So even in the 60s, they um, Yeah, they were like, like, this is bullshit. No. Yeah. Um, he failed all of these tests. Okay. Once the jacket was determined to be stained with blood, Warren put the former dishwasher under constant surveillance by the state police. Warren, along with the two detectives, began checking into Wager's past and also into similar crimes in the area, which might have escalated into murder. Dummett came across the reported rape and robbery that took place about a mile from Starved Rock in 1959. This is the Matheson Park crimes. And with Warren's approval, he approached the young female victim with a stack of mugshots. As she slowly sorted through them, she began to scream as she came across the face of Chester Wager. Oh, okay. Not good. Not not a good look. Not good for Wager. Good for her. And good for the police, not good for Wager. Yes. Warren ordered the arrest of Wager for the three murders, as well as the robbery and rape from the previous year, and worked with the detectives on an interrogation approach. They kept him in the interrogation room until past midnight, and then finally exhausted, Wager stopped mid-sentence and asked to see his family. 
A police car was dispatched to his family's home in Oglesby and his mother and father were brought to the courthouse. Dumb- Wait, didn't he have a wife and kids? Yeah, I think they were there too. Okay. <laughs> He's like, can I see my family? And they're like, yeah, we'll go find your great-grandma and bring her down. <laughs> <laughs> Got your nieces and nephews one here. Yeah. It's the thing, the, the difficult thing about this was that I was reading two articles at the same time. Not at the same time. And you were saying that like one of them was for him and one of them one was One was against. for, one was against. But what I was doing was like I would – like I would go through the story chronologically and I'd like add a little bit more to my story and then I'd switch to the other one, read through what I'd just written to make sure that I got all the points and then read that like, you know, just like, like cross checking. Cross checking. Mm-hmm. But what it meant was that such journalistic integrity. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> um but but what it meant was that I was missing some details that I was like, well that's generally what they said. Yeah. And that, yeah. you know, um, because, like, even with that interrogation stuff, there's so much more to that where they had him for a lot longer and there's, like, there's some evidence that suggests that even the surveillance was um, one of the detectives or, or Warren himself wrote down that it was meant as psychological warfare. And, right. like, yeah, so there's a lot of stuff. A bit of to harassment this. going on. Yes. Yeah. yeah. His parents were brought to the courthouse and the detectives gave um, them a few minutes alone with their son. In his official statement, which was taken the next day, Deputy Hess stated that when Bill, who's the other detective, uh, stepped out of the back room in the state's attorney's office to show Mr. and Mrs. Wager to the door, I could see that something was bothering Chester. I said, Chester, why don't you tell me about it? There are just two of it. There are just the two of us here. Just tell me about it. And he said, all right, I did it. I got scared. I tried to grab their pocketbook. They fought and I hit them. The pocketbook that Wager is talking about is the camera. He mistook the camera for a pocketbook. Okay. Don't know how that happens, but okay. So here's here's Wager's um, confession. Okay. Yeah. During his afternoon break from work, he was walking towards St. Louis Canyon when he encountered the women. He grabbed a strap from one, believing it to be a purse, but it was attached to the binoculars. Okay, so hang on. I'm sorry. He must have grabbed the binoculars thinking it was the pocketbook. Right, okay. Yeah. Okay. So he grabbed the strap from one, believing it to be a purse, but it was attached to the binoculars. The strap broke. At this point, he said one of the women hit him with either the binoculars or a camera. Another attacked him with something sharp, perhaps a comb. Then somehow he was able to calm the women down and persuade them to walk into the canyon as he followed. That sounds like a lie. He told them that once they returned to the canyon, he would let them go. Back in the canyon, the women agreed to allow him to tie them up. He used string from the kitchen that he had in his pocket. He stole nothing. such bullshit. Who, who is just like, yeah, sure, you can tie me up. There's obviously coercion. He obviously had like a weapon or something. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, maybe, well he did. We or know he's th- just lying straight up. We know that the weapon was the tree branch, so maybe he already had that handy. Or maybe, you, you don't know, like... I can imagine in a situation where maybe he's already like hit one of the women or. But to be like, put, I'm just going to, the three of us will just sit here while you tie us up. Well, two of them. Because one of them was unconscious. I don't know. Let me keep going. So from the kitchen he had in his pocket, he stole nothing from the women and began to walk away. That's when one of the women broke out of her binding and attacked him. He picked up a tree branch, knocked the woman unconscious, and dragged her body into a cave. Fearing that he had killed her, he then bludgeoned the other two to death to eliminate witnesses. Then the woman he first hit regained consciousness and struck him with the binoculars. He re- oh, bloody hell, it's like Romeo and Juliet. He, he retaliated with the tree limb and the binoculars. Overhead, he spotted a red and white Piper Club airplane and worried it was a police plane, so he dragged the bodies of the two other two women into the cave as well. 
He said, quote, then I took this here lady's coat off, if I am not mistaken. So he's asking the detective, is that right? Or is he just going, that's like a figure of speech, isn't it? It could be as well. Like, if I'm not mistaken, I then did this. Yep, and- yep, 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 possibly. Wager then said, quote, and put in front of this one here and just made it look like a rape is all I can say. So asked whether he removed one woman's pants and stuck them under her underskirt, as was the case at the crime scene, he said, I do not know. He checked their pockets for money and finding none left the scene. He washed the blood off his hands in a creek or in the snow, then returned to the lodge to work his evening shift. And that's when he was seen with scratches on his face. Yes. The plane detail was one that the prosecutors believed only the killer could have known. They'd gone to the local airstrip and confirmed that there was indeed a plane flying over the location at the time the women were being murdered. Okay. Wager went back to the scene of the crime and reenacted it for the detectives as well. But... After his first meeting with his court-appointed attorney, Wager changed his story and stated that he was innocent of all the charges. Wager claimed that Dummett and Hess had coerced a confession from him by threatening him with a gun. I also read that they had told him that he'd get the electric chair, but if he confessed, they could get him a deal that spared him the death penalty. He said that he'd lied in his confession, but had been so scared that he signed the papers anyway. Wager also said that Dummett had fed him the information about the aeroplane. Is, is this at a time when... Um, police interviews were like recorded in any way well this one was not because i'm sure it would have been noted yeah yeah um he later claimed to be in oglesby at the time of the killings getting his hair cut the barber did say he was in the salon that day but no time was mentioned and oglesby is is less than 10 minutes drive from starved rock regardless okay so he could have done both he could have done both despite his recant a grand jury thought that there was enough evidence for chester wager to stand trial so he's indicted the trial went ahead. Prosecutors decided to file charges against Wager for only one of the three murders. Um, the reason for this was that in the event of a mistrial or an acquittal, they could still file charges against him for the other killings, avoiding the double jeopardy rule. Oh, so and then if he if they didn't get that one, then they could do yeah, the third they one. They get they three bites of the cherry. Yeah. yeah. They sought the death penalty in the case. But this was later amended to life. Later in twenty ten, Recuglia. <laughs> Did later, just, later in 2010, 70 uh, years. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go back. Yeah. 50 years later. <laughs> I'm going to go back. I just wanted to just drop this in here. So in 2010, Recuglia, who was one of the prosecutors, would later recall during an Illinois Institute for Continuing Legal Education event about the Starved Rock murders, quote, I said, Bob, this kind of happened this way. This is absolutely ridiculous to have happened this way. He said, the other prosecutor, well, what are you going to do about it? I said, well, nothing. I'm going to tell the jury this is what happened because bottom line, at the end of the confession, he says, I killed him. That's what we need. We need him to admit he killed the women, not how he did it. Yeah. Okay. Can I I tell you my thoughts so far? Go ahead. I think that he did it, but I don't think he did it the way that he's saying he did it. I think there was, I don't know, maybe somebody else involved or maybe some other motive. I think he's lying, but I do think that he was involved. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> For someone who is so like pro innocence project and like is like they they shouldn't be in jail. <laughs> she, she did kill her babies, but she shouldn't be in jail. No, well, when there's evidence, I'm like all all for them. Throw away the key. <laughs> okay, but the this man has been indicted on the evidence of his confession, which he recanted, mm-hmm. the blood on his jacket, which is only human, has not been matched to anyone else, mm-hmm. and the scratch on his face the next day. Hang on, there's there's something else. He had details that only the killer would know. Okay, but he says they were fed to him. Let me keep going. Okay. 
So Recuglia definitely believed um, Wager's guilt. Yeah. He said in a later parole hearing, so spoiler, he does get convicted, but in a later parole hearing, he said the following quote, and I love this quote, um, not necessarily like, because I'm not. Oh, that's the other evidence. Sorry. What? Sorry. The rape victim that was like. Screaming at him. That was the guy. Right. But we all know the eyewitness testimony is so flawed. True. But it's, it's quite a. And there was also there was also a lot of bullshit going on. So they got Wager to stand. I'll drop this in here. Okay. They got Wager to participate in a lineup. He was the only one below forty years old. Okay. So obviously, if you've got an idea in your head of a young guy, yeah. Well, it's him. Yeah, that's not not great. And I'm wondering if they did the same thing with the cards, with the um, photo array. Possibly, possibly. So, Recuglia says, and like I said, great quote quote he deserves to die in prison and he deserves to have his body delivered to some cemetery somewhere to begin its journey to hell where without question he will have a very prominent role oh isn't that so powerful metal (laughs) yeah (laughs) i hope someone hates me that much someday (laughs) don't worry they will they probably already do (laughs) back to the trial so back to the 60s. Um, Wager's three-year-old daughter, Becky, is barred from attending her father's murder, murder trial to prevent the jury from being swayed by her big blue eyes, golden curls, and, quote, winsome smile. The little Abby. I was going to say, who does that remind you of? The little, little Abs. Abigail. <laughs> <laughs> so she's barred from the trial. She's not allowed in. I feel like that's also probably a good thing because I don't know if a three-year-old should be listening to that, listening to that yeah. kind of detail. So on March 4th, Almost exactly a year after the murders, the jury brought back a guilty verdict for Chester Wager. On the day of his 22nd birthday, he was sentenced to a term of life imprisonment. After Judge Hoffman dismissed the jury, reporters asked them if they knew that a life prison in Illinois meant that Wager would be eligible for parole after serving some time. Some were not aware. (laughs) Two jurors were visibly dismayed upon learning that Wager could be eligible for parole in 20 years. A lack of knowledge of Illinois law and the prosecutor's failure to properly instruct the jury ended up saving Wager's life. There was one juror that said something like, I would have sentenced him to a fate worse than the electric chair. Like they were, they were horrified by him. Um, as he's let out of court, two sheriff's deputies reported hearing Wager say, you will never hold me. They probably will, but yeah, did they? They did. Um, (laughs) Chester Wager was incarcerated at the Statesville Penitentiary in Joliet. Now, whenever I hear these place names in Illinois, it just takes me right back to when um, I would take the train from normal to Chicago because Joliet was a stop. Mm -hmm. And I just hear the conductor going, Joliet. And another one one was Peoria. And like Peoria, Joliet. uh, Like, Is it like the English one where they, like, you know how here in Perth it's pre-recorded? Is it? No, no, no. Yeah, it's not pre-recorded. Yeah, (laughs) it's it's a conductor. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, he is incarcerated at... In Joliet. He's also, he moves around a fair bit throughout the years, but initially in Joliet. In 1963, while serving his sentence, Wager pens an autobiography, the one I was talking about earlier, and gives the 48-page manuscript to a Chicago Tribune reporter. In it, Wager proclaims his innocence, quote, and this is a quote, now there's nothing in the world that I needed bad enough to kill for on March 14th, 1960. Okay. Sarah rolled her eyes. Sarah is not convinced. (laughs) Scooting forward to 2018 now. Just laugh because it's like 1963 and then scooting forward to 2018. I'm sorry, but this is just how I have to do it. 
Chester falls one short vote, one vote short of securing release from prison on his 23rd parole hearing. Wow. Many feel that the evidence that was used to convict Wager would not stand up in court today. Yeah, probably not, but today we also have the benefit DNA. of DNA. His prosecution largely turned out to be based on his confession, which predated Miranda warnings that are required today. Others question how a small, slight man like Wager could have overpowered the three middle-aged women and then moved their bodies by himself to leave them hidden under the rock overhang. I don't necessarily place too much weight in that argument mm. because men are strong. Yeah. Even and like, also, I think it's. I still think it's possible that he had somebody helping him. Yep. Okay. Um, others who believe in Wager's innocence point to a deathbed confession. That, oh, is he yeah. dead? No, oh. no, 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 no. Oh, okay. <laughs> that allegedly occurred in 1982 or 1983. A Chicago police sergeant named Mark Gibson submitted an affidavit in, tw- in 2006 that recounted the confession. It was being used in court to support a motion for new DNA tests in the Starved Rock murder case. In the affidavit, Gibson stated that he and his partner, who was now deceased, were called to Rush St. Luke's Presbyterian Hospital to see a terminally ill patient who wanted to, quote, clear her conscience. The affidavit stated, quote, the woman was lying in a hospital bed. I went over toward her and she grabbed hold of my hand. She indicated that over. I'm sorry. (laughs) I just turned the spotlight on Sarah (laughs) from my phone. Um, She like I was in an interrogation. (laughs) (laughs) She indicated that when she was younger, she'd been with her friends at a state park when something happened. The woman then told Gibson that she was at a park in Utica and things, quote, got out of hand, multiple victims were killed, and they dragged the bodies. Gibson said that the woman's daughters uh, cut the interview short, shouting that their mother was out of her mind and ordering the police from the room. In the affidavit, Gibson did not provide the exact date of the interview or the woman's name, but said he passed the information along to the to a detective. The affidavit did not address whether or not there was any follow-ups or why the confessions were not presented until 2006. The alleged confession was not allowed into the court hearings, although new DNA tests were ordered. However, they failed to clear Wager of anything because the samples had been corrupted over the years. And that's what I was saying where everyone had touched them. Some raise eyebrows at the juvenile offenders who discovered the women's bodies, asking why they'd been able to find them so quickly. But they were not far from the lodge, and if yeah. they're at one of the most popular locations, I'm that actually surprised that nobody else came nobody else found them. Yeah, I guess it was the snow that kept people away yeah. from them. Yeah. Um, others share images of old news stories about a LaSalle County man who was known to stash stolen guns in caves at Starved Rock before they before he fenced them in Chicago. Had the Riverside wives during their hike stumbled upon something they weren't supposed to see? Perhaps, maybe. Still, others believe the killer was someone the victims knew intimately. They point to a report by William Jansen, a 25-year-old graduate of the Michigan State School of Criminology, who state police brought in to take a fresh look at the case when they'd hit a dead end. Jansen concluded that the murders appeared to be, quote, more a revenge crime than a sex crime and recommended friends, family and business associates be questioned. Why? Why did he think that? Because of the personal nature of the attacks. Their faces were obliterated. Um, there's this prosecutor, Kelly, who is now Wager's pro bono lawyer. No, she's not a prosecutor, sorry. She's a defense attorney. She's now his, his lawyer and she's working to help clear his name with him because Wager is constantly asking for the DNA to be tested in any way that it can be. There's this company called 
trace DNA or something like that. And they specialize in very, very small amounts of DNA and getting um, results from them. But I don't think they're allowed as evidence. They're not like accepted. Yeah. So they can, they can say like, yeah, look, this, this showed this, but it's not allowed to be used in court. Yeah. So Kelly, this lawyer had cast suspicion on another man, George Spiros. He's the son of the operator of Starved Rock Lodge at the time of the murders. Another staff member. Yep. Spiros lived with his father in a house on the park grounds, not far from where the women were found dead. Um, His alibi didn't quite check out, but he did pass a polygraph. And in May 2005, two weeks after Kelly presented her findings for a panel of prisoner review board members advising the governor um, that they wanted to relook at DNA... The 73-year-old George Spiros was found dead in his Starved Rock residence. The apparent cause was a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Kelly said, quote, I feel it's suspicious that this man was a suspect in this highly publicized case and now he's dead. Yeah, that is suspicious. It is, but, you know. Um, Wager, while in prison, had been told that if he, if he expressed remorse over the killings, he would be likely granted parole sooner. But year after year, over the course of 23 hearings since he became eligible for, for parole a half a century ago, he refused. His claim of innocence, he said, was all he had to cling to. In 2019, Wager is granted parole on his 24th try in a 9-4 to vote. However, Wager's release from prison had been delayed 90 days after Illinois Attorney General Kwame Rowell's office sought to have him evaluated under the state's Sexually Violent Persons Commitment Act. The law requires proof that a person suffers from a mental disorder and that it's substantially probable he or she will commit acts of sexual violence as a result. A spokesperson for Rowell's office said experts who evaluated Wager found he did not meet the legal criteria and say they will not file a petition in court arguing he should be involuntarily committed. So under this law, Wager could have been held indefinitely in a secured facility in the custody of the Illinois Department of Human Services for Sex Offender Treatment. Wait, so when they were going to let him out, this group were like, hang not on. Not the group, the state um, state attorney, I think it is. Uh, yeah, the Illinois Attorney General. Was like, we need to assess him for And this. assess him, yes. And then when they did assess him, they were like, he's, he's fine. Oh, okay. Yeah. But this this law, which I think is... A good one. I know mm. there's a lot of people that are going to say this stamps all over human rights and everything, which it kind of does. Yeah, but so does sexual assault. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it allows them to just hold a person if they're deemed a risk indefinitely. Good. I know. As I they know. should. Yeah. In Feb of 2020, Wager is released from prison after 60 years behind bars. Wow. Um, How I old think was he? He was 80 when he was released. He's the longest serving prisoner in Illinois history. Whoa. Uh, recently, uh, as in the last couple of years, some trace evidence from the crime scene was crime scene was retested. The hair found in the fist of the woman was found to be dissimilar to that of Chester's. His legal team argued that he should be exonerated of the murder, but the state argued that the evidence was too degraded to prove anything. He was 80 when he was released. He's now 83. He's still alive. He's still fighting to clear his name. Um, there is a book and an HBO documentary about this case, neither of which I consumed. <laughs> Maybe I'll watch it. What's the documentary called? Uh, I think it's called The Starved Rock Murders or something like that. Okay. You'll better find it pretty yeah. easily, I'm sure. So what are your thoughts? Okay, so now I'm not as sure. Okay. But you're still not convinced entirely of his innocence? No, I'm yeah. not fully convinced yeah. because I think there's some weird stuff that hasn't been explained. Like, yeah. And also there's there's a lot of, like, he he does kind of fit it. Like, he, he fits it pretty well. 
Well, not really. He's, uh, he's got access to that kitchen with the twine. He was on break at that time. Well, th- no, that's, that's according. So, yes, he had access to the kitchen. But him saying he was on break is only according to his um, confession, which he recanted the next no, day. No, but I'm sure that they could check if he was on break or not. Yeah, but I don't think they were doing too much work to disprove his confession. Yeah, but the, I'm sure the defense would have. I don't know, because like I say, so he, his, he in his confession, he cites robbery as his motive, right? Yeah. But if you remember, one of them was raped. One of them was sexually assaulted. Yeah. The prosecution deliberately suppressed that so that they could go with the robbery motive as his confession stated. Mm. If the defense knew that one of which they should have as part of discovery, then they should have targeted that and said, he's that's not his motive. That's not his MO. That's not, you know, maybe they just assumed he was lying. Maybe. But also I can see in the sixties, detectives been full bullheaded and just like beating the confession out of a guy. Yeah. I could, I could see that they're under intense pressure to get this solved. Um, interesting though right yeah it is it is it's i feel like it's frustrating though because scratching my knee yeah he does that if he wants pats well lie down then <laughs> god it's frustrating because i actually don't i don't think this will ever be resolved i think it's just gonna be like a mystery yeah because it's the d it sounds like the dna is so fucked that they even if they were able to pull something from it it would be in question well officially it has been solved officially yeah um chester wager is the murderer yeah yeah just unofficially and and the um the title of the i think it was the might have been chicago.com article was unmaking a murderer (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, a long episode. We're at an hour now. Okay. All right. That's all right. Um, I I hope you enjoy the long ones. I hope you enjoyed that story. I hope – give us your thoughts. What do you think happened? Yeah. Because I'm I'm not fully sold on his innocence either. I just think there was certainly some, you know, dodgy dealings that went on. I think if he is guilty, then he is at least lying about how it happened. Yeah. It doesn't – it doesn't make sense to me the way he's saying that it happened. Yeah. And even the prosecutors thought he was lying about how he said it happened. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds fake. And also years later, one of the jurors said, now I know that kind of happened. Like I don't believe that. So yeah. Yeah. Mm, A very interesting one. I know. Yeah. Give us your thoughts. Drop us a line. Um, We've got a website. Oh, did you pay for the website? I haven't yet, but I will. (laughs) I told busy. people last week. I know, but it's like obviously no one's getting on it. <laughs> <laughs> we did get somebody on it. Remember, a non- yeah, a non. couple. No, a couple of people have like written to us on it. But okay, yeah, look, I'll do it. It's <laughs> earliest convenience. Yeah, so we will have a website back up and running soon. <laughs> <laughs> Once I pull my finger out. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Yeah, uh, tune in next week for. It's me next week, isn't it? It is. What am I doing? Oh, do you want to know what I'm doing or do you want me to wait until next week? I want to wait. I want to be surprised. Okay. All right. All right. Tune in next week to find out what I'm doing. All right. Bye. Okay, bye.